is Diagnosis Glaucoma with your hosts, Dr. Mona Colleen and Dr. Harry Quigley. Greetings. Up until now, we've mostly been talking about adult forms of glaucoma, but believe it or not, glaucoma can affect children also. There is an entire field dedicated to pediatric glaucoma. And in this episode, we're going to be going through the issues that someone who has pediatric glaucoma or a parent or another family member should be aware of. Let's start with some terminology. Well, we refer to glaucoma that occurs within the first three years of life as congenital or infantile glaucoma. And there are many different causes of glaucoma in children. The most common cause is that we actually don't know. It's called primary glaucoma in children. Yeah, doctors also call it idiopathic because we're such idiots we don't understand why it happened. But probably half of the kids with glaucoma have just a mysterious glaucoma. The pressure is high, but everything else about the eye and the child is perfectly fine. Then there's the other half that have these general problems that happen either throughout the eye or throughout the body. And then can you also mention about the juvenile forms, Harry? It's an interesting dichotomy because congenital means that it was present when the child was born. Now, the truth is that we don't always recognize there's a problem at that particular time, like in the newborn nursery. So I generally call it infantile glaucoma, meaning that in the first year or so of life, that's when it was recognized. There are kids who develop glaucoma in their teens, early teens. Now, some of those are actually known gene defects, the most common one being the myosinin 1Q mutations. And others are just glaucoma developed in a child for no reason at all. And then finally, there are some of these general syndromes where we know that the facial structure, the bone structure, the teeth of the person are abnormal, and the eye also was abnormal. And those all go together, and they're named after various doctors who first recognize them, or they're given certain descriptive names. The way that children get glaucoma is that there's some kind of an abnormality in the anterior chamber angle development. Usually this is at the level of the trabecular meshwork, and the way I was taught was that there is something called the Barkan membrane that lies over the trabecular meshwork. And again, remember that the trabecular meshwork is the outflow system of the eye, the drain. But I have also heard that this is controversial. So, Harry, can you comment on that Barkan membrane? Yeah, well, Otto Barkan was a fascinating guy. He was probably the most prominent glaucomatologist of San Francisco of his era in the early mid-20th century. And Otto Barkan first started looking at the angle with the clinical instrument we call the gonioscope. Please go back to the podcast on gonioscopy. Barkan was one of the first persons to actually look at the angles of children. Now, these were children, of course, who were being examined because there was something wrong with their eye. Generally, the pressure in the eye was high. And when he looked in, he saw what looked like a glassy membrane there. So he said, well, this membrane must be blocking the outflow of water from the eye. I have to cut a hole in it. And that's what led to one of the operations that we'll talk about for congenital glaucoma or infantile glaucoma. Then since Barkan described it, it was called Barkan's membrane. Subsequent to that, a brilliant researcher who was my teacher in glaucoma, Dr. Douglas Anderson, obtained the specimens of eyes of children who had glaucoma, and by looking at them with an electron microscope, he realized that it just looked like there was a non-perforated membrane there, but there actually were perforations in the membrane. Now, every kid, 
every child who's still in the warmer, who's still in utero, has a non-perforated trabecular meshwork until about the fifth month of gestation. And then just beyond there, the holes start forming, and aqueous humor starts moving, and it starts going out through the trabecular meshwork and hopefully does so normally. So what's now believed is that the mechanism of most childhood onset glaucoma, especially the infantile version, is that there's a delay in development of the trabecular meshwork, and it doesn't develop properly, doesn't move its tissues in their relationship to each other properly, or that there is, in fact, a late, still not perforated membrane there, and that that's why these kids develop it. Now, remember, with open-angle glaucoma, we said that half of the people with open-angle glaucoma have a normal eye pressure. Every kid with glaucoma has a high eye pressure. So this, in fact, is the disease of high eye pressure. And when we talked about normal pressure glaucoma or low-tension glaucoma, there's never been a reported case of normal-tension glaucoma in a child or even in kids in their teenage they're just beginning to be some investigations of that in Asia. And can you remind our listeners again of what a high eye pressure would be? Well, in a child, it would be something above the number 20 measured with a tonometer. But of course, we're going to be talking about how tricky it is to measure a child with a tonometer. So there's a new solution to that. Okay, so a little bit of information about epidemiology. We know that primary congenital glaucoma, it's rare. It occurs in about 1 in 10,000 births, and it accounts for about 50 to 70% of childhood glaucoma. The other kinds of glaucoma are due to secondary mechanisms, which we'll describe in just a minute. And there are various genetic mechanisms. This condition can be autosomal dominant or autosomal recessive, and that's what we know right now, but there's a lot of great work being done in this area to find out more. Around 80% of cases are diagnosed within the first year of life. Most of those who are diagnosed are male, and 70% of cases tend to involve both eyes. I'll correct you a little bit. I think there's no question that there's a male predominance, but there certainly are girls who develop this as well. And the message for a family that has a first affected child, the first question that always comes up in genetic counseling is, Am I going to have another child with this problem? Now, with some of the disorders that are related to childhood onset glaucoma, we can give you some idea that the chance of a second affected child is pretty high. For most of the cases, though, we really can't tell you for certain. We just know that the chance of having it is as high as maybe 10% or 20% that a second child is going to have it. That then is left up to mom and dad to decide are they going to go ahead and have second children, and most parents actually do, in my experience, go ahead and have more kids, and most often they're not affected, and that's fine. Even having an affected child does not mean you have a child who's not going to be normal. The majority of kids who have this live a normal life. They're normally sighted. They go to regular school, and they're perfectly intelligent. It's not the end of the world as bad as it is to have a child with this disorder. If you have a history of congenital glaucoma, it's a good idea to talk to your doctor. And you may also want to get genetic counseling to find out more about the things Harry has just discussed with your chances of passing this on to a child. There are other causes of glaucoma in children. There are conditions where the eye is abnormally too small, where there's some kind of a problem with the cornea, 
also where there's an abnormality, the way that the anterior chamber angle develops or a problem with the iris, the lens, really any structure in the front of the eye that then causes an obstruction of outflow of the aqueous humor can cause a form of glaucoma that is not a primary cause, but one of the secondary causes. And sometimes those conditions are associated with systemic or another condition of the body. There are a number of them. There's too many to list, but there's good information out there. If you email us, we can point you towards the right resources. Our email address is diagnosisglaucoma at gmail.com. And there are people doing research in this area to look into which genetic defects might ultimately provide us good genetic tests. But at the moment, we can't really say to somebody that there's a good genetic test for anything other than one or two of the known forms of early onset glaucoma. And there's no intrauterine test. People who believe that intrauterine diagnosis is okay, we can't offer you anything with regard to telling you that childhood onset glaucoma is or isn't present in utero. What does a child look like who's got this? And the interesting thing is that almost never does a first-time mom and dad recognize their child has this condition. The reason is that the eyes in a child with a condition are tearing a lot. The child doesn't want to open his or her eyes. They're very sensitive to light. The cornea, the front part of the eye, is bigger than usual. And when the condition is quite active, the cornea turns cloudy, so you can't see the colored iris of the eye. And we've had children come to us where the parents hadn't recognized anything was wrong because, frankly, in the first month of life, the first two or three months, babies don't have their eyes open very much. They're certainly always sensitive a little bit to light. And parents don't have very much experience looking at the eyes of children. Very often, it's the grandma or the aunt who says, there's something wrong with that kid's eye. And that's what leads the parents to bring the child in. Pediatricians in the newborn nursery should be able to recognize the really overt condition of a child with infantile glaucoma. But it can be subtle. And we've certainly had kids. I remember a young man who came to see me as a training doctor. He was five years old. His parents were so proud of him because he had the most beautiful big eyes that anyone had ever seen. And he did have big, beautiful eyes. They were glaucomatous eyes. And he unfortunately had already been badly damaged by glaucoma. And it just hadn't been diagnosed until he was almost that age. We were fortunate we were able to help him to keep his vision. He became a dad. He didn't have children with the same condition. And he's lived a good, long, healthy life. That's a good story. So how do we diagnose this thing? What kind of thing? Do you do exams under anesthesia or do you have me or some of the other staff do it for you, Mona? Well, it's not that easy to examine a baby in the clinic, for me at least. Maybe you're more of an expert at that. Well, also, I'm now a grandpa too, so I've been <laughs> able to get kids to be quiet, but the best way is to feed them and have them have a full tummy. And in the newborn area, once a child has a good load of breast milk on board, you can pretty much sneak up on them, take a good close look at the eye, examine the corneas, and we now have a tonometer that allows us to measure the pressure in children's eyes without eye drops, without anesthesia, and without the baby feeling anything at all, the eye care tonometer. 
And I told the guy who developed this eye care tonometer that he had saved the lives of many children during his lifetime because we don't have to necessarily put the baby under anesthesia. And while anesthesia can be done safely in babies, one out of a thousand, one out of 10,000 kids have a complication of anesthesia. And now many fewer of them have to be put under anesthesia to make the initial diagnosis of glaucoma. But of course, if we're going to do surgery and surgery is the primary treatment, then we're going to use anesthesia for those children. We also need to look in the back of the eye because the child can't tell us very well whether they can see, although by three months to four months, a child should be really fixing and watching you. They should be smiling back at you. They ought to be watching a finger or an interesting object moving. So we can get an idea of whether the child is seeing something coming or not, although we can't do our detailed visual field test. Have you ever tried getting a visual field test on a child? These days, kids are so used to playing with toys that are electronic that I have no doubt that some bright young ophthalmologist pretty soon is going to do a visual field test using a toy that looks like an iPhone and be able to test a kid. We can certainly test the visual field of a laboratory situation. With mice in the laboratory, we have a way of testing their visual acuity. And so certainly a two-year-old or a three-year-old, we should be able to do that pretty soon. I think the youngest we've ever done a formal visual field on a child was five years old. And having explained to the kid, of course, the machine is so big that we had to have a set of Telephone books. Remember telephone books? No, you don't, because they didn't exist in your life. Telephone books were these big, thick books, and we'd have people sit on three of them in order to make sure the stool was high enough. And we had to have this little kitty sit up on three telephone books to have his visual field test. They actually used to use telephone books as a coffee table back in the day when I was a student, and I didn't have much money. So I remember them. So do we use medications on kids with glaucoma? Absolutely. We do. It's not the first line for treatment. The first line treatment is going to be surgery, but medications are safe. The eye drops and also oral medications if needed for a short time to bridge them to surgery. There is one eye drop that should not be used in pediatric patients. That is the alpha agonist drop. It's called alphagan, bromonidine, or iopidine. That can cause children to get sleepy. So we don't recommend that one for them. We also tell pregnant women to avoid that medication. Have we done a podcast on pregnancy and glaucoma? That is a good idea. We, we have not. Oh, that's going to be a good Yeah, I want to do that one too. Surgery for children, for infants, is about as successful as the surgery for adults. In other words, about three out of four initial operations work. The pressure goes down, stays down and the child goes on well and hopefully doesn't need eye drop medication because it's very difficult on moms and dads to put eye drops in a child every day. The surgeries are special, but in fact, with our new minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries, there's a podcast about that. In fact, I think more than one podcast on big surgeries. The surgery for childhood onset glaucoma is very similar to some of the minimally invasive operations in that what's done is we open the trabecular meshwork either with a knife or with a suture or a device that's placed all the way around the eye, and then the meshwork is torn open. And those have been done since Otto Barkan, the guy that we talked about at the start of the podcast, 
and Barkan was one of the first to do goniotomy, to make a razor cut in the interior of the eye. When that doesn't work, the other surgeries can be done. We certainly do tube shunt operations in children. I have done many trabeculectomies in children when the initial angle surgery didn't work. What about lasers? I think that we reserve it for a latter stage of the disease. Laser ciliary body treatment, I guess you're referring to, and the ciliodestructive procedures are something we would do only much later because we hate to do things that would decrease the amount of aqueous humor early in someone's life such that later on, when they're 30 years old or 40 years old, the eye just stops making fluid entirely. But if my back was to the wall and everything else had been tried, yes, indeed, I have done diode ciliodestruction for children. What about the selective laser trabeculoplasty or the laser peripheral iridotomy? Well, one of our colleagues, Dr. Al Robin, did a study with laser angle treatment a few years ago and found that the younger a person was, the worse it worked. It's benign. I wouldn't think that it's impossible to try, but there's no reason to believe that it's going to be working now when it didn't work in the past. So I'm not sure that I would do the laser angle treatment for a child. They have to be cooperative and comfortable, too. So you were really talking about maybe teenagers. So with all of these surgeries, what is the prognosis? Like, will these children retain good vision? Will they, like, what kinds of vision will they have later on? And what kinds of potential long-risk things should they be aware of? Well, first, the initial treatment can be successful. And then 10 or 15 years later, it comes back again. So the child who's successfully treated is going to have at least annual exams, if not every six-month exams to be sure that the pressure remains down and it hasn't come back. The second is that the two eyes are very often unequally affected. So one eye is affected more than the other one, and one eye gets bigger. Believe it or not, children's eyes get larger when the pressure's high because the structure of the eye isn't locked down. The, we say the connective tissue isn't cross-linked. Well, if one eye got a lot bigger than the other one, that eye would be more nearsighted. It would be more myopic. And when the brain sees one eye is more myopic than the other one, the brain picks the eye it likes best, and it turns off the other eye. It's called amblyopia, or lazy eye. And it's very difficult to treat, but it can be treated by specialists who are really good at strabismus or amblyopia treatment. So the instant we get the eye pressure in control for a child with glaucoma, we have them immediately in the hands then of our strabismus specialist. And we try to treat to avoid having vision loss but I would say the most common cause, other than bad glaucoma damage of vision loss in children with glaucoma, is to have amblyopia in one or both eyes from the effects of the eye becoming larger and the cornea becoming a little scarred from the high pressure. It is the majority of kids with congenital onset glaucoma who do well and who go through regular school, who have reading vision. But unfortunately, we're still not doing as well as we'd like with the other half. Can a child get cataract from one of these procedures? Children with glaucoma have conditions that lead to cataract or, in fact, are associated with cataract right out of the box from day one. So not only does it appear to be part of a group of things wrong with the eye, that there's cataract and glaucoma, our surgeries can also lead to cataract. Not necessarily the angle procedures, but the effect of the high pressure and the effect of some of our other surgical procedures can more often lead to cataract. We can operate on cataract. We do put lens implants in children as we do in adults with cataract. 
I think there's a podcast about lens implants and cataract surgery. So if somebody's interested in that subject, you can listen to that. I've also been told by my pediatric ophthalmology colleagues that babies who are born with cataracts are at greater risk for glaucoma. Can you comment on that? It's the most difficult of our glaucoma problems, I think, is that as soon as a youngster has the cataract surgery, we start monitoring them for the possibility of developing glaucoma later, too. And for the reasons that I just mentioned, the two things kind of go together. And it is not trivial to do cataract surgery in somebody who's six months old. So that should be done by someone who does it regularly, but really a super specialist in pediatric eye surgery. So just out of curiosity, you mentioned your grandchildren. I've heard a lot of grandparents and even parents who are ophthalmologists say that one of the first thing that they did was to examine the eyes of their grandchild or child. So just out of curiosity, have you done that yet for your grandchildren? Well, the girls are now seventh grade and fourth grade. But yes, indeed. The first time that I met them and I met both girls when they were in their first month and a half of life. I made sure they didn't have large cloudy corneas. I made sure they were tracking as well as a newborn tracks. The first month of life, the kids can often have a little bit of crossed eye or wall eye. They haven't quite figured out exactly how to line up the two eyes. I looked certainly for what we call an orange reflex, which means that the interior of the eye wasn't filled with abnormal material. I did not do a formal exam, though. I'm not sure what their dad and, their, and my daughter-in-law would be thinking of me doing that. The girls have now, though, been to the office to you know, see the equipment and that sort of stuff. And they thought that was fun, trying to teach them that women make better doctors than men. I agree with that. And hopefully one of them can invent that field that you were talking about for children. Thank you for joining us. Until next time... Your mom says take your drops.